Hello and welcome to the Gifted Ed Podcast. We are grateful for the opportunity to share this space with you today as we go into the trenches with two of our teachers in the field of gifted education. In a recent episode, we explored the topic of gifted learner profiles, specifically accelerated and passionate learners. This is Alexis Bryant, a middle school literacy teacher and department chair. Looking at literature and even your writing, it's a very vulnerable place. Alexis has 23 years of teaching experience, 10 of which have been with Brighton gifted students. She is passionate about analyzing literature through contemporary ideals. Alexis has a deep passion for writing and analyzing poetry. She also uses elements of history as a lens to explore literature at a deeper level. So if I can provide them with the space to really dig into these texts, and maybe it helps them see a side of themselves, or it helps them to grapple with something, if not in the immediate moment, but perhaps in the future, I feel like then I've succeeded in giving them at least a little bit to help them throughout the course of their life in some way, shape, or form. We also spoke with Chris Mikowski, a K-8 visual arts teacher. The risk and the rewards slowly increase. So at the beginning, we can experiment, we can have fun, we can play. Chris has been teaching for 13 years. She has seven years of experience at international independent schools, which included stints in Venezuela and Trinidad. And we can take that knowledge and move to the next step and then build some technical skills and then move to the next step. So there is support and scaffolding at each step in the process for our students. It is understandably difficult for teachers to meet the needs of gifted students. Deficiencies in addressing certain learner profiles include inadequate time for planning, standardization of instruction, and underestimating the capabilities of their students. Being mindful of the different learner profiles and understanding how to accommodate accelerated and passionate learners is imperative. Well, what I think, um, you know, being an English teacher or a literacy teacher, um, naturally, because we're dealing with all different types of reading, it's going to elicit a lot of strong feelings in our students, um, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, whatever the case may be. And I think one of the benefits of being a literacy teacher is I'm able to foster that passion and give students the space they need to share their thoughts and feelings about a particular reading. And it could be something that they can relate to. It could be something that they've seen in their lives or just through other different media that they've been a part of. But the idea is that they can, they can foster these feelings in a way that is safe and it makes sense for them. Um, and I think literacy and all the elements of it, whether it's reading, writing, it just naturally lends itself to creativity. And I feel like when you can bring yourself into something, it's going to just have those passions in it because it comes from you and it's a, a part of yourself. I think what you said about the space component is so important because oftentimes, I think especially with the gifted intensities, um, there could be a propensity to try to you know, make that less or explain how it's gonna get better if it's, if it's something that's really troubling to them. I just really respect that you provide that space because it's a very difficult thing to do. Well, you know, it's, it's important to me. I think about when I was a student 300,000 years ago <laughs> and in the English classrooms I was in, if it wasn't very grammar centric, and look, I love grammar, but if it wasn't very grammar centric, we would read a story and we typically at the end answer a series of comprehension questions, perhaps in a notebook that the teacher had laid out exactly how it needed to look. And I don't remember 
maybe until high school, but probably college, having discussions about what we were reading and really kind of digging into, you know, different literary elements, but in a way that made sense for our age. So it was important to me because they are able to comprehend a text in a way that maybe some of their peers are not able to at that point. If we're going to dive into character development and conflict and what makes these different people they're encountering who and what they are, it only makes sense to give them a space where they feel like they can share things and know that it's a space without judgment. Um, And that as long as they bring in evidence to support what they're thinking and feeling, it's okay to to think and feel those things. When even thinking through like the journey of self-awareness, right? Because in middle school, that's a yeah, huge part of is. what's emerging <laughs> and starting. And and so giving the space to self-identify potentially emotions that they connect with the characters about or to look at the characters as human, right? Like ups and downs yeah. and flaws and strengths and weaknesses versus kind of like the black and white thinking that sometimes yeah. we do prior to that stage of development. Yep. Um, I think can be such an asset to their own self-awareness and and beginning to understand themselves and relationships. I think that's called bibliotherapy, where you Mm -hmm. use the context of characters to explore your own personal emotions and connections within the story. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is no matter what books I've picked, and, you know, there's a book that we read with our sixth graders, um, The Outsiders, and it was, truth be told, it was a book that I really loved as a kid. And, you know, I'm always... Every year I'm like, do we continue to read it? Does it still resonate? Because it was written in, you know, the mid-60s. It's Mm -hmm. a different time, a different place. But I feel like with our students in particular, because it shows a side of people that they would rarely come in contact with and because they're teenagers grappling with all kinds of emotions, it still resonates in a very powerful way. And the discussions I've had with that book in particular and what the kids bring up through the lens of the character and what they reveal about themselves, it ends up being, again, more powerful than I could have ever envisioned it to be. When it also seems like you're honoring the ability to be complex, right? Yeah. And for characters to be complex and that that's okay and that they were created to be complex, which gives yourself some freedom too. It does. And, you know, as I've said to the kids more often than not, the author of these works is not going to come in the door and say, I'm sorry, you've analyzed this character incorrectly. I mean, that'd be really great, although some of them have passed away, so that might be a little odd. However, you know, I tell them, you're going to feel the way you feel about X, Y, and Z, and that's okay. And then if they can relate it to themselves in some way, not that I'm always asking for that, but actually I'm probably not asking for that because I want it to be a personal experience. But I do think it's really powerful when they can see themselves in a piece of literature and they can identify because I think it helps them to understand the text in a different way than perhaps someone else would. Well, and for those passionate learners where it's all about the relationship, what a beautiful opportunity for them to do so. Yeah, and you know, that's the thing is that what we what we read in, in fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth too, I think the themes of many of these books, it's all, you know, coming of age. Really, for the most part, it's 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 akin to what these kids will experience or are currently experiencing. And if it helps them to kind of grapple with that, um, that's really wonderful. And again, if it helps them to feel something good, bad, you know, beautiful, ugly, whatever it is, I want them to know that you can feel all those things and it's okay to feel them through the eyes and experiences of the, the characters on the page. 
Uh, so in terms of some of the divergent thinking practices, um, how have you kind of incorporated some of that into your classroom? Well, again, I think, you know, the beauty of literature and, you know, before and with writing is how you interpret a text, what you create in terms of writing is so personal. And often there is not one way to look at something, one way to answer something. So I think the literacy class naturally lends itself to divergent thinking because it isn't black and white. You know, there's yeah. so much opportunity for exploration. And I think about it at a, I'll start with a more basic level, um, just in the, the writing atmosphere, even if it's something analytical, um, the students are curating evidence to support an argument or a thesis of some kind. But the evidence that I have may be very different than the evidence, the, the kid who's sitting next to me, but it doesn't matter. The fact is they've curated evidence to support their thinking. Mm -hmm. And there's not one, always one answer for that. And then I look at it from the more creative spectrum. Um, if I'm giving students, let's say uh, we're big poetry writers in the middle school. And if I'm giving a poetry assignment where there might be a form, but within the form, there's a flexibility to be creative and, and to think in a divergent way. So you might have a structure to follow, but within the structure, you can play around and take risks. And I think because there isn't a finite answer and there's lots of ways to do things, it gives students the freedom and the security to take that risk, which they may not feel as ready to do so in a different yeah. class. Yeah. Well, and I think perspective taking is so embedded in divergent thinking mm -hmm. and, and providing them with those opportunities, you know, like you were saying to search uh, text evidence from, you know, the story. Right. And maybe that's dialogue. And, you know, my perception of this dialogue was this and I can justify it in this way. I know that's a really good example. Yeah. And I think it's something where, you know, <clears throat> when we look at the kind of writing that we know that students will do once they leave ACS and while the creative is, you know, everyone's fun and enjoyable type of writing. It is the analytical they'll have to take, but having those skills in place, it gives them the confidence to say, well, I can create an argument and I can find evidence to support it. And then they can take that skill, that divergent thinking and bring it into social studies and science. Again, the parameters will change, but they're still using that skill in a way that I think is more accessible for their age. And that feels like something that's more authentic to them. Like I can connect to this because it's a character, it's a conflict. Whereas sometimes when you're given, you know, a, a, um, a topic that's more black and white, you may not feel that connection right away. So this is a good, I think, entry point into that type of writing. I agree. And like how they can apply it to other classes. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is that divergent thinking where it allows them, again, I, I think if they're taking risks in my classroom and I'm showing them different ways to kind of do things and to make writing their own, even that very, um, you know, evidence-based, like science writing, social studies writing, where there, there are answers that you're trying to find or something you're trying to prove, there are ways to still make it your own, even if you're looking at like very tangible evidence. Do you feel like some students require more permission from you than others to take those risks, <laughs> right? Because some of you would think would welcome it with open yeah. arms and other and say like finally and others are probably their anxiety goes through the roof. Yeah. And as someone who has a lot of anxiety myself and if you're someone who wants to do things the right way and you like the formula, mm -hmm. I think for some of our students, it is tough to take that leap because they're like, well, it should be X, Y, and Z. And I tell them, yes, but like there are or yes and. Like there's yeah. all different ways to do this. And if the outcome is this, there are different ways to get there. So 
when I think about our students and just how they think, um, I'll give you an example. This is an annotation-based example. So we have our students starting in fifth annotate text, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, and there are certain parameters that we're looking for because we want to build a foundation of those skills. That way, every year the skills are growing and they become a little more nuanced, um, a little more rigorous in their thinking, a little more developed. Um, so what they started with fifth, by the time they get to eighth, you see a natural progression. But with our sixth graders, we, we finished reading the book Other Words for Home, which is this beautiful book written in verse. And it's about a young Muslim girl who um, is living in, in Syria at the start of the, the 2010s. And she and her mother have to leave because her mother is pregnant and it isn't a safe place for them to be. And they take up residence in Ohio with their uncle, who the main character, Judah, has never met. So it's really about her trying to figure out how to maintain her culture, her heritage, in a place that is not very open to um, Muslims in the, after the lens of, you know, after 9-11, in a post-9-11 world. So the novel itself is written in verse, which I'm a big fan of books written in verse. I think you're able to take this full story, but then you have to distill it into the most thoughtful words, the best imagery. So it takes a lot of skill and craft. And I think our students really like to see the difference between the straight narrative and in verse. But annotations are a little bit different. So we were asking our sixth graders to look at things like diction and figurative language and sensory image, topics that I'll be honest, in terms of annotation, they might not have gotten to until they're maybe in upper middle school or high school if they were in another school. But our kids are up for the challenge. And when they started asking me questions about word choice, I was like, I think you're ready for this. <laughs> so in terms of the div divergent thinking, one of the things we had them annotate for toward the end of the book was structure. And that's really hard to, to annotate for. I myself look at it and I'm like, well, it's in stanzas. Like, okay, great, whatever. Um, but I had a student who looked at a stanza and looked at the way the line was broke. The lines were broken up and said, well, Miss Bryant, if you look at it this way, it reads like this. But the way that the author, Jasmine Warga, wrote it, it now reads like this. So he talked about looking at it from wow. this way. Yeah. And I said, I would never have looked at it like that. Yeah. But that's that divergent thinking where mm -hmm. I think if you give them the space to try something out and if they feel safe and secure – they're going to put it out there and he shared it with his class and I was and he that's just one example of of what I hear I don't want to say on a daily basis but very frequently where they're looking at something and they have a different perspective and a different way of of viewing it and I'm often I'm not really at a loss for words very often <laughs> but in those situations I'm just like you're 11 you're 12 maybe you're still 10 I know at my, at that age my mind was not there. So the fact is we need to cultivate a classroom where they can take those risks and they can put something out there. And I always tell them, look, put it out there. What's the worst that happens? It doesn't really make sense. And you're like, yeah, that didn't work. Or if you're writing something, it doesn't work. You backspace, you, you delete, and then you just start over again. Mm -hmm. And I know that looking at literature and even your writing, it's a very vulnerable place. And if it's not safe for them to have a discussion, I feel like I've failed as an educator. So if I can provide them with the space to really dig into these texts and maybe it helps them see a side of themselves 
or it helps them to grapple with something, if not in the immediate moment, but perhaps in the future, I feel like then I've succeeded in giving them at least a little bit to help them throughout the course of their life in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, all these things, whether it's writing or analyzing literature, it's ongoing. You know, even a piece of writing isn't totally finished. Um, you can always work on it. And I think that for our divergent learners, letting them have that freedom and knowing it's okay to stumble and, and you might have some anxiety. I have it too. But the fact of the matter is you can, you can do great things. Just kind of give yourself that space to try. We would like to thank Alexis for her time, energy, and passion. It's no wonder why she is so well-respected by her students and colleagues. Next, you will hear our conversation with a K-8 visual arts teacher, Chris Mikowski, as she expands on the importance of allowing time to connect with the content, as well as being intentional about creating a space for students to take risks. One of the things that I think is really fabulous about the art room is it provides a space that is wonderful for both passionate and accelerated artists. Our mindset as a fine and performing arts department as a whole is process over product. We want students to be risk takers. We want them to engage as creative thinkers, as innovators. And we really like to start with supported creative environments for students to explore, to play, to experiment in the beginning of a unit. And then as we progress, we move towards the convergent thinking, adding in structure, focusing on targeted skills-based technical lessons, and working towards bringing that creativity, that spontaneity, that flow into applied process, and hopefully eventually creating a product that they're also really proud of. So I have a question. For some students, um, embracing the divergent path is more difficult than others. And I'm just curious if you could share a little bit about what sort of activities or practice that you incorporate um, within your instruction to kind of ease the way for that, right? Because some students initially are like, no, I want to do it the right way, even if I'm sketching. And no, I know this is an exercise, but there has to be a correct manner in which to proceed. So tell us a little bit more about that. One of the ways I really enjoy encouraging students that are hesitant or afraid of taking risks is working with the concept of teaching for artistic behaviors or TAB. So having students start out with the opportunity to engage with materials, techniques, um, different processes before they know what the end product is. Mm, So by taking that pressure off, students can try out a new media. They can experiment with a technique with as much or as little support as they need. But that teaching for artistic behaviors is helping students engage with the media first. Is it like a form of play? Yes, there's a lot of play. Consequence-free play. Consequence-free play. Um, One of the other things I always encourage with every single unit as our students advance into our upper grade levels is working with smaller sketches. So artists traditionally have used cartoon-style sketches or thumbnail-style sketches that are smaller in size. They take less time. So there is a feeling that students can make four, five, six, seven, eight sketches and really embrace that the first idea is not always the best. I just see this being a, such a good practice in um, working through anxiety that might come up. Um, I know you referenced earlier process over product, and that's something that I know came up in previous episodes when we talked about perfectionism. Um, so I think it's just such a great hands-on, in-the-moment practice of that of that 
tool and of that way to kind of work through that there isn't one right answer because that comes up also in literacy or social studies. Math is probably a little bit different in terms of what the right answer is, but I think it's just such a good practice with hopefully that they feel some ease in time, that there's no right one answer that you're looking for. There's no one outcome that you're looking for. Definitely. I also think that agency can empower students. So really bringing in that choice through TAB, but also through every decision in the design cycle in tandem with our makerspace, with tech, with library, to jump in the cycle wherever is appropriate. So thinking about the research stage, the development stage, a resolution or reflection stage, and then working back through. So students have an opportunity to think about what worked, what didn't, and also coming back to those choices, whether that choice is the size or shape of the piece, the composition, the media. I always want there to be options. And my goal is that pieces, as much as possible, look different and you can see students processing in the final product. What you do really embodies the growth mindset process, especially with that reflection component. I'm just so happy to hear that students have that time because without that, then we can't reevaluate we can't, you know, try new. It definitely helps. When I think when a student can identify with processes that the classroom teacher has purposely put in that works for them, they feel at home, right? Like there's a space for them to create, to take risks, to try, because you've already set forth that this is an acceptable way to do this too, which I think is so empowering. It's a practice. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And I think working through from that divergent and free flow space into a more structured, convergent thinking space and having gradual steps along the way that the risk and the reward slowly increase. So at the beginning, we can experiment, we can have fun, we can play, and we can take that knowledge and move to the next step and then build some technical skills and then move to the next step. So there is support and scaffolding at each step in the process for our students. What a beautiful example of scaffolding. (laughs) So one question I have that I think comes up with um, probably routines and and structures that parents want to set at home, but then also teachers need to set in the classroom. So it's it's multi-environment is like, how do you deal with pacing? Because at times a a passionate learner and accelerated learner are going to be on two different timelines to get a project done, however that may look. And so how is pacing typically, how do you work through that? I don't want to say obstacle, but the difference of of learner. Oh, pacing is absolutely an (laughs) obstacle in the art room. So it really depends on the age level. At the younger age of the spectrum, I control more of the pacing. And there's a lot of thought in the process of, is this project as able to be differentiated as possible? Can I add on extensions for students who need a greater challenge? who work faster, can I take them through and can we go back to a portion and spend a little more time? Can we redirect and come back to a different part of that design cycle? And as differentiation is huge. And one of the focuses in my project planning is how, how much can I scale this project to students' needs? Because there are some projects that are fun and fabulous and wonderful and the product is great but they don't allow space for different learners. So one of the things I focus on as I'm planning, reworking, and looking at our curriculum is can we offer within this this project, this unit, 
this set of skills? Can I offer this space for a wide variety of students and their needs? And then as students progress, I try to move more of that pacing onto our students in terms of setting goals and deadlines and giving different day-specific goals for, let's break down this time. How much time do you need for this part of the process? Or do you need more for another part of the process? So thinking about, they don't always have to be on the same pace. I don't expect students to stay on the same pace as others, but can we all get to the finish line at the same time um, for the needs of the program and, and movement within the program? But it really is like everything else, it's scaffolding. So when students need more of that support, that is something that I build in. And as we're especially working through middle school, where those executive functioning and the planning skills, it is something that I am trying to teach within each unit and trying to challenge students to take more of that planning and responsibility and pacing. Well, and part of that agency incorporates what you just said. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, it's it's so profound in the sense of you're teaching them skills that they're going to be able to integrate and utilize across subject levels. I'm also just laughing at my own um, way and how I approach things and the amount of flexibility that it requires us as the adults in the building to be okay with different timelines and different ways. And if you're seeing the learning process really expand, can I, as the adult, make space for that and adjust other pieces? Because this is truly the goal, right? So I think too, it kind of prompts us to reflect on our own flexibility or timelines or what's what's feasible what's not and sometimes timelines it, it's it's hard right and there's well, a and sometimes date parameters that, are yeah. set and we need to adhere to parameters right and figuring out i guess where we have our own agency to figure to to meet the needs of our students along with working along the timelines that are on educators as well so just never ending balance i think for teachers We'd like to thank Alexis and Chris for sharing their knowledge and perspectives with us. Please consider how you can create space for students to have more agency and autonomy that impacts their learning. Also, consider how respecting the context of their own experiences can empower students to own the process. We want to thank you for joining us in this space today. Please subscribe to the Gifted Ed podcast to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Stay tuned for our next episode that continues to unpack the complexities of giftedness. Giftedness.